Well, I am really looking forward to today and just so grateful that I get to share with you this week and next week. feel really blessed and honored to do this. Um, I tried and tried all week to figure out how in the world to say thank you for last week, and I just can't. There just aren't any words to tell you how much that meant to me, and um, I read all of your cards uh, minutely and and just... I, I I don't I can't even say anything. I don't know how do you tell people how much you love them. You just can't do it. And uh, for those of you that we've walked through this journey of life for for decades, and those of you who that we've just been getting to know one another in the last years, and you've already become so dear to me, and I just can't thank you enough. Um, the love offering that you gave me was past any. I just I, I was speechless and. I just don't know how to tell you how much I appreciate you and how much I love you and how much I'm going to miss you. I didn't realize last week until the end of Heartstrings that some of you didn't know what our plans are, so I'll just tell you that real quickly. I told that home group last week, I said, I just feel like it's all about the grays right now, and that's driving me crazy because it against everything that I believe in for you know, for people monopolizing conversation and thoughts and stuff, it drives me crazy when people do that. And I feel like that's me in the last couple months. But I know I don't want to uh, not have some of you know what we're doing. This uh, late winter, we had gotten a call. We had, John is on contract for um, Heritage for the next two years. But um, that was to be special projects in any way that Sean would like to use him. And our denomination called in this late winter and asked us if we would consider, uh, if Heather, uh, if, uh, Heritage would consider allowing us to go to Battle Creek, Michigan. It's a Wesleyan church there that um, was one of our good, really strong churches in um, the denomination. It's running about up to 2,000, and they've had a church split and are down to about six or 700 in a new building that they've just built to seat 2,200. And so it's a, a really struggling church right now, and um, they just feel like they need somebody with some um, maturity and experience to come in and kind of help um, stabilize things and bring some hope and some healing and um, ask us if we'd consider doing it. Of course, we had to have Heritage be willing to allow us to do that. And so uh, we'll take the three week, lots of prayer and talking went into this, and we weren't sure for several, for two months or six weeks if this was going to happen or not. They considered getting a full-time guy in there right away, their permanent person, I mean not full-time, the permanent person right away, and um, have finally decided that's probably not a healthy thing to do for a church that's this um, unstable, and so they have asked us to come and do an interim. So we'll take our three-month sabbatical in May, June, and July, and then beginning um, mid-August, we'll go to Battle Creek for... Anywhere from four months to eight months, so that's not, that's still to be determined. They have no idea. We have no idea. It's, and I'm not exactly sure even what the factors will be that will make that decision. Um, but we, um, people say, are you excited about it? And I don't think that that's the word I can use with it. For me, it's just getting through these weeks and getting through the emotional stuff of all this, and, and that's um, taking its toll on. Uh, on us until we get I don't mean that in a bad way it's just you can't you can't leave a place that you've loved for 41 years and not have that um, take its toll on you and so really Battle Creek is like oh yes we're going to do that someday in the future but we don't have to think about that right now and we don't have to 
go there emotionally or anything. And so um, that's our, those are our plans. We, because of knowing that we would be gone for that amount of months, we decided that we needed to put the house on the market because we didn't want to close it up for you know, 10 months or whatever it might be. So we put the house on the market uh, a week ago, a week and a half ago now. Um, yeah, a week and a half ago. And uh, are hoping to sell that real soon. If you think about praying for anything, uh, we have an offer, but it's the person who has to sell their house. And that's always the tricky thing. They're in a neighborhood in Bettendorf, I think, that sells really fast. And so we're hoping that that will happen. Happen to be a couple from our church. So we're just hoping that, that gets done because we need to have that done before we leave uh, the 1st of May. So it's, it's really um, impeding our sleep right now, all of this stuff. <laughs> trying to figure out how to keep that surrendered and yet uh, trying to figure out how to get everything accomplished. And so um, that's where the braves are right now. So thanks for praying for us. Thanks for loving us. I put a quote on your note, guys, that I referred to last week at the end of Heartstrings that is one of my, I felt, I I said, this is a quote that I want to have said at my funeral. Vera, you and I are talking about funerals today. This is my quote that I want to have said at my funeral, but I felt like last week was my funeral and I was alive. (laughs) Everybody should have one of those. You know, where people say things about you that you won't ever be able to hear when you die? I mean, it's really pretty special. It's it's, it's like, man, I thought I turned it on. I began to think, what would be a good way to end heartstrings? What would be a good way to have our last six weeks together? And this verse came to me where Peter says this in chapter 1, verse 15. Anybody got a Kleenex for me? You'd think after all these years I'd remember to bring my own. <laughs> Whoever gets here first, I'll take theirs. <laughs> I don't come down off this platform again. Thank you. Peter writes this to the people. Second Peter is written towards the end of his life. He knows that he doesn't have much time left. And he writes this. Chapter 1, verse 15. I will make every effort... To see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. That verse really stuck out to me and I began asking, Okay, Lord, if I could only share with my dear friends... Two more lessons. What would I share? What are the things that I'd say, I just really, really want you to remember this. It's the same thing that the other teachers will be sharing. What is one lesson that they say, throughout this summer I want you to remember? For me, it will be throughout this next year what I want you to remember. And I didn't know what to do. Because I have lots of things I want you to remember. And so I began to pray, what would be uh, two things? Two lessons that if I only get to teach you these things, this is what it would be. I still don't know if in a month from now, if these would be the two lessons. This just happens to be it right now. So that's what this week and next week will be about. A lot of you have asked, am I going to do the um, Keith Green lesson? And I can't tell you for sure. There's another lesson I think I want to do next week. If I don't do the Keith Green one, I'll give you in print the lesson with the songs. And so you can like, you know... Study the lesson, go to the song. Study the lesson, go to the song. You might even want to get with your table this summer and do it that way so that you can discuss the questions and stuff on it. So the lesson's already written, but I'm not sure it's the one that if I only have one thing I want you to remember. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I give you this next hour and 15 minutes, or let's see, yeah, hour and 15 minutes. 
longing to be your servant, your vessel, that will be able to say some meaningful things into the lives of these women that I love, so that you, Holy Spirit, will be able to take those things that are just man's words, people's words, and be able to penetrate our hearts and our minds and our lives, our souls, so that we'll be transformed as a result of your word and of your power that lives within us. So I give this to you. I give myself to you. I pray that you would give me um, good and just a precious sense of your anointing. I pray that even beyond that, you would take each woman right now and that your Holy Spirit will just draw her to yourself and that you'll fill those tables that they're sitting at and that you will um, open eyes and ears and hearts so that maybe people will hear something they've heard for years, but it'll suddenly penetrate the core of their beings and they'll long to be what you want them to be. And I pray, Lord Jesus, by the end when we... Um, bow before you for surrender that we'll be able to say across this room, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, I'm surrendering. Pray in your holy, precious name. Amen. I'm really excited about this lesson. It's a lesson that I, it's a sermon that I got to do last month at QC West because we were in the middle of that Bold Crossings series, you remember? And um, I was going out there, as you remember, and I got to share this sermon, and I decided I just like this so much that I want to share it with you today, but I turned it into a lesson so that I think there'll be really good discussion around the tables also. So take your Bibles and turn to Numbers 32 and put a piece of paper in there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book. 32. Put a piece of paper there. Because we'll go somewhere else before we turn to there. Love to hear your pages rustling. Remember always that if there is a, if you forget your Bible, they're right back there on the cabinets. So you can pick one up and return it at the end unless you really need it and take it home. I'm a visual learner, and so I wanted to visualize this lesson when I went to QC West, and I thought it'd be good to visualize it for you here now, and I realized this morning that you probably can't even see it, but it helps me to visualize it, so maybe it'll help you. If you remember Old Testament times, John and Sean preached about this for four or five weeks this winter, and they talked about the fact that the Israelites came out of northern Africa, Egypt, and they wandered in the what? Wilderness for 40 years, because at one point, they were, God had said to them, I'm going to give you a really special land. Um, keep your fingers, or keep your pages to Numbers 32, but go to Exodus chapter 3, Genesis, Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. Verse 17. Exodus 3, 17. Moses had received these words from God long time before our lesson today is going to start. If you have the NIV, read it with me. I have, the part that starts out, I have, does your start out, I have? Okay. I have promised, do anybody have NIV with me? Okay, say it with me. I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I guess that goes on a little bit to say a land flowing with milk and honey. So here are the Israelites, the Jewish people. They come to this place up there that was called Canaan. It was the promised land. But you know, they messed up. They didn't believe God. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. 
Now, they have come down this desert area. They have come up on the eastern side of what is called the promised land, Canaan. It's over there. To get there, you have to cross the Jordan River. The Jordan River, if you... Hopefully you can see a little bit of it. It starts up here with the Sea of Galilee. You know, a lot of stories happen on the Sea of Galilee. Then the Jordan River comes down from that and flows into the Dead Sea. All places that we were at two weeks ago. So here, the Israelite, the 12 tribes, had wandered for 40 years. We find them now at the edge of Canaan. Say that with me. I want you to remember this really, really well. What's this? Where are they now? They're at Canaan. And God said, there's a place over there that is a promised land. They're over here now in a place called Gilead. Say that with me. Gilead is what we know today as modern-day Jordan. It's on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, I think what might help us to realize that this is going to be a dream come true for these Israelites. Cross over, go into the promised land. But before we go any farther, I think it would help us to understand in God's eyes and in the hearts of these Israelites, what did the promised land represent? Something that they've heard about for 40 years. What did it mean to God and what did it mean to these people? I put it on your note-taking guides right there. Because I'm a visual learner, I also to put some words up. First of all, it represented victory. Well, like doing a cheer, V-I-C-T-O-R-Y, in high school when we do those cheers. It represented victory in the name of God. God saying to them, if you obey me, if you listen to me, I'm going to help you cross over and you're going to have victory. But it wasn't just victory. It was also reward. It was the reward that they would receive after they had obeyed and believed in God's promises. It wasn't just reward. It especially represented rest. It was going to represent rest from slavery that they had in Egypt. It was going to represent rest from the wars and the fighting that they had had and would have to have a little bit as they crossed over or some as they crossed over. It would represent rest from their toil. It meant eventually that they were going to have no con- lack of conflict, lack of famine, lack of plague. It was really a promised land. So what's that mean to us, though? I think if you take New Testament scripture and what we know about God theologically, we understand that much of the Old First Corinthians says that much, much of the Old Testament was written for our learning, to, to learn the lessons that we need to learn from them. So what does promised land mean to us today. First and foremost, New Testament times, our times, it means salvation that's offered for you and me. Salvation, you get salvation in Jesus Christ, New Testament times. That's promised land. It means, too, it's rest. It's still rest. It's rest. It's it's God fighting for you. It's Him going into battle with you. It's rest from striving from sin and slavery of sin and all the chains that sin can represent to you. It means rest. In fact, if you read Hebrews, you find that a lot. New Testament times, promised land is rest. I keep remembering that as I go through stuff these last couple months. Okay, God, your will for me is rest. And when I walk outside of rest, then I'm walking outside of what you want. 
It also means it's his reward. But today, it's the reward of his presence. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells the believer so that we get the reward of his presence. And this is what I think it means to deep, abiding relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. When I put all the things that I think the promised land represents to us, the symbolism of the Old Testament bringing it to today, I think this is it. The promised land is represented by God's best. God's best. Both for their lives, Old Testament, New Testament, it's it's God's best for you and for me. In fact, I want you so much to put those two words, God's best, in your mind, that whenever for the rest of this lesson I say promised land, I want you to say real loudly, God's best. Let's try it. Promised land? What does promised land represent? What's promised land symbolic of? Yeah, I want you to keep remembering that. Now, I want you to talk about this around your question. When I talk about promised land, when I talk about promised land, you'll get better at it. What thoughts come to mind for you? Now, you know, I just listed all those things that it means in modern day Christianity after Jesus came. What does it represent to you? You know, you might take one of those and you go, oh, it means this to me and I can't tell you how thrilled I am for it. Maybe it represents something else when I say God's best for you. I just want you around your tables to talk for a couple minutes on what's that mean to you? That you today in New Testament times get promised land. What's God's best represent to you? Go. we don't do this like BSF as wonderful as BSF is one of the reasons we do it like we do where you have to sit around the table and you have to plow through this stuff and you have to talk about it and you have to say honestly I don't think I'm living in God's best right now or I, you know, I don't have promised living or yes I want a dishwasher so that I can live the promised living <laughs> Megan <laughs> not that she really said that But one of the reasons we do this is because much of your learning and growing and maturing happens around those tables as you sit there and say, man, my life really is hurting right now. And somebody hears that, and somebody processes that with you, and somebody prays for you. And it's admitting, life is tough. What does the promised land mean when I'm going through a divorce, or when my kids are rebelling, or when... I don't have money to pay my bills. Or when I found out I have cancer. What does promised land mean then? It's still God's promised land. When we know Jesus, there is a difference to life than when we experience all of those things and live in Gilead. And I know, man, I would never minimize what some of you are going through. I have been there. I haven't had the cancer diagnosis, but I've had a lot of those things I know. But I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that when life stinks and hurts, oh my goodness, I don't want to live in Gilead. When I can still have his presence, when I still rejoice in his salvation, when I still walk through life knowing that the Spirit of God is leading, when I still have friendships and people who help carry that the load, I still want to live in the promised land. 
That's why we do cross trips the way we do. Because much of what you learn happens around those tables. Give me five things that you said about the promised land. Uh, Jasmine, real loudly, say yours. Do you remember what you said? I heard yours. Promised land living, Becky said, is, is, is happiness deep in my soul. That's a different kind of happiness than the rest of the world lives. Um, somebody else, what did promised land living mean to you? Yes, peace of mind. And on and on. These, Reuben and Gad, these two tribes of thousands of people come to Moses and they say, in verse 5, do not make us cross over to the promised land. Thank you very much. Don't make us cross over. When I first began studying the scripture, I was so struck by those words, do not make us cross over. And I began saying, what? Why in the world wouldn't they want to cross over to this land that's been promised by God for 40 years? I mean, they waited 40 years for this moment. So I began taking this scripture and just going deeper in it to say, why? Look at verse 1. We have the answer. Then the Reubenites and Gadites, who had very large herds and flocks saw that the land of Jazir and Gilead were suitable for livestock, so they came and they said, da-da-da-da, don't make us cross over. You see, this area that they're in, this Gilead, it's really thickly wooded, and it has lots of rain. Where have they been for four years? How do you think it made them feel to be finally in wooded watered places. It must have been wonderful. And scholars say that it was near perfect land for pasturing. And what were they doing? Pasturing. They had herds and flocks. And so here were these two tribes that were tired of driving their herds in the desert. They're sitting in well-watered land. They're making an economic and materialistic decision. They want to stop and settle. They're willing to not enter the promised land. They were willing to settle for second best. That's on your notes. They're willing to settle for second best. And so, I want you now to think about you are the Reubenites and the Gadites, the tribes of Reuben and Gad. That's you, okay? Pretend that you're here. You're in Gilead. You've come to Moses and you said... We don't want to cross over. We're very comfortable where we are. Thank you, Moses. How do you think Moses will respond to this? Uh, Not real well. Look at uh, verse 6. Or you can just write verse 6. First, he views this request from these two tribes as selfish. Write that down on your notes there. As selfish. And then you can just put verse 6 there. How did he do it? Let me tell you what he says. He says in verse 6, Should your countrymen go to war while you sit here? It's like he's saying, you selfish people. Is it fair that your people go off and conquer that land while you sit here? And I don't know if you hear it or not, but I hear him saying, while you sit here on your bus. And he says, you selfish people. Number two, he also views it as a potential morale problem. 
as a potential morale problem. Right, verse 7 there. He says in verse 7, Why do you discourage the Israelites from going over into the promised land? Thank you. Some of you, you're getting it. See, he understands. He understands that if these two tribes don't get on board, they, the, the rest of the guys may get discouraged and very well may decide to also reign, remain in Gilead and stay on the east side of the Jordan. And by the way, if you know anything about Old Testament, that's exactly what happened. There's another tribe called Manasseh, and they start talking about this problem. Half of them say, we're going over. Half of them say, we don't want to go over. And they remain here on the eastern side with Reuben and Gad, with the tribes of Reuben and Gad, And the tribe is split for the rest of history. Number three, he looks at the request as disobedience. Disobedience. He says in verse 10, you might want to write that down. He says, and I'm just picturing him saying it this way. He may have said it entirely differently, but this is what I'm picturing where he says... This is just what your fathers did at Kadesh Barnea, remember 40 years ago, when they're down there looking up in the promised land? This is just what they did in Kadesh Barnea. The Lord's anger was aroused that day. They didn't follow me wholeheartedly. But it doesn't stop there. He says in verse 14, just write verse 14 down so you can study it later. You brood of vipers, (laughs) you brood of snakes, standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more angry with Israel. Ouch! So, you know, you're, you're the tribes, remember? You brood of vipers. I don't know if he could have said that nicely. Oh, you brood of vipers. <laughs> you're so cute. You brood of vipers. You made God angry 40 years ago, and now you're doing it again today. You're disobeying him just like you did 40 years ago. I mean, he takes this really, really seriously. He knew that God had called his people to enter the promised land. And he knew that these two and a half tribes were wanting to settle for less. I mean, it's a story that's amazing. It sounds like something we could read in um, in a novel, doesn't it? Or see on the in, on the big screen. These guys going, no, don't make us go any farther. Don't make us go into the promised land. Don't make us go into God's best. But you know what? I read this story and I recognize we can do the same. We can do the same. Look at those three words. They were selfish, he said. It was going to hurt the morale, he said. They were going to walk in disobedience, he said. And I began thinking, hmm, do we know anything? Moses had been leading him for 40 years. Do we know anything about a 40-year-old, a 40-year leader here? Hmm. Um, Moses is getting ready to turn over to Joshua. Hmm, do we know anything? Have we ever heard anything like that? A 40-year leader turning something over to a younger guy? Huh. Do we know anything about having to decide how we're going to react to that? Do we know anything about saying, I just want to settle in just exactly where I am. Thank you very much. I've been happy for 40 years or 20 years or 10 years, however many of you might want to say that. And I begin saying a good question perhaps to ask around your tables is this. Very practically, here at Heritage, in our time to cross over 
into promised land a new day. How can our people, perhaps you, react selfishly, affect the morale, and walk in disobedience if we're not careful? Say anything you want to about it, any way you want to talk. Could that happen here? Has that happened with you? Have you heard anybody talking about it happening to, happening to them where they're looking at this selfishly, where they're affecting the morale because of their own decisions, or where perhaps they're walking in disobedience? Let me tell you one way you can walk in disobedience. I was talking to some dear, dear friends on Saturday. Some of you are here. And at the end, we were talking about some of these changes that are going on with John uh, leaving and Sean taking over. And one of the things I said is if you don't pray for Sean, if instead you gripe about Sean, you are doing disobedience, you are walking in disobedience and doing disservice to the God whom you are called to serve and the church that you're called to love. So, around your tables, <laughs> how can this very thing that we're going through, in three minutes, talk about it? How can you react selfishly? How could that affect morale? And how could it be walking in disobedience? Go. Well, I know that's not enough time to talk, but I'm eight minutes behind. So yeah, I'll talk fast, like I'm not already. So what do you think the response is of these tribes? They seem to backpedal. They begin saying um, in verses 16 to 19, Oh, no, 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 we'll fight with you. Um, You just let us take care of our kids, our families, and our livestock, and then we'll go off to fight with you, and then we'll come back and settle here, which is exactly what they did. Uh, Moses granted him the privilege of living on the east side of the Jordan, and he told Joshua, when you take over, don't make them move into the promised land. Well, I hadn't read this story in a long, long time until a couple of months ago when I was preparing for that sermon. And I can't read some scripture without turning it into lessons for me. And so I came up with three lessons that were really, really powerful to me. I hope that they'll really be powerful to you. The first lesson that I get out of this scripture is about choices. That's your first blank. It's about choices. God allows us to make our own choices. It's called free will. These tribes plead, don't make us go over, please. And God didn't. Though he did give them a stern warning through Moses, he didn't make them do what they didn't want to do. And you know what? That's still the case today. He still allows us to make our own choices and decisions. He doesn't coerce, demand, or twist our arms. You've heard me talk about my mentor, Mary McQuiston, over a lifetime. I remember when I was a teenager, she said this, Patty, God is a gentleman. He will not force anyone to do anything. I admit that a part of me thinks that Moses should make them cross over until I realize how little it works to make someone do anything. Why? It doesn't change the inside, does it? I can make somebody do something out of the force of will, but I can't change the inside. One day, a couple months ago, when I was studying the scripture, I prayed these words. Lord, you didn't force those tribes to cross over. You gave them the choice, just as you always do. Out of your love, you allow us to make the choice to serve or not serve, to love or not love, to give or not give, to grow or not grow, to be godly or not to be godly. 
You always want us to want to serve, to love, to give, to grow, and to be godly. You never force us to do so. To do so. You know another little parenthetical thought to you? You can't decide for anybody else. You can't decide for your spouse, for your kids, for your friends, nobody. Now we want to, don't we? Man, if I could, I would make some decisions in the next hour for some people that I love. But I can't. And if I really get that, somehow it gives me a measure of grace or of um, peace to say I cannot decide for anybody else. But you can choose for you. And the Lord wants you to make choices that allow you to enter the promised land. You see, God still offers a promised land for his people. It began to say, why in the world would we want to settle for anything less than God's house? you think about it, isn't it the only place for us to live? Never forget, guys, how you choose matters. That's your blank. How you choose matters. During the Bold Crossing sermons, Sean said this. It's on your notes. I think it's so good. We all experience defining moments in life. Crossroads moments. Decision points that ultimately define us and around us and those around us. What we do in those moments matters. And elements of fear, uncertainty, and obstacles can write a different future and rob us of God's best. We'd say the promised land. Because of this uh, free will thing, You and I can be just like those tribes. We can make the choice to settle for less than what God wants for us in our own lives. And I want to encourage you to get alone in your quiet time in the next week where you can be totally and completely honest with yourself and ask this question. Is there any place where I'm settling for less than what God wants me to be? Or have or do? Is there any place where I'm settling for less than what God wants for me? Star that for me. Put a star by it because I want you to really remember it. Get alone and ask Him is there any place where I'm settling for less? Now, a question around your tables is this. Um, I, I don't know how good of a question it is, but I want you to at least talk about this. Can you think of a place in your life where you may have a, be tempted to settle for less right now? Maybe it's a place in your past where you're tempted. Kind of come up with that. And then, I didn't put this in it, but ask this to, uh, around your table. What feelings does that bring up in you? When you make that decision to settle for less than the promised land, what feelings does that bring up? What feelings do you get in that? I hope that's a good enough question. For, it's a hard question because most of you won't want to admit it. Because to verbalize it means you feel like you have to do something about it. So most of you will kind of go, mm, I'm not sure. So maybe one or two of you who are really bold, can you think of a place where you're really, you often get tempted to settle for less? For me, it has a lot to do with uh, um, just settling for, I, I only have to spend a little bit of time in the Word I mean, to check it off. And it's easy to settle for less and to settle for just saying, I'm just going to read the word and pray a little bit. But for me to really live promised land living, I have to be in the word. I have to be uh, really in prayer. And it's easy. I'm always, every day, tempted to settle for less. 
Yours might be something entirely different. But around your table, just maybe one or two people share. Where might you be tempted to settle for less than what God wants? And what feelings come up to you? Through into to you when that happens. Let's see how you do with that. Go. Well, I know you can talk forever about that one, but I want to go on to the lesson number two that I came up with as I studied the scripture, and it has to do with this word consequences. So we talked about choices. God always allows us to make the choices, but the second word that I see here is consequences. Our choices have consequences, and you have a blank there, right? This is the word, always. Our choices have consequences, not just once in a while, but always. You see, God allows people the privilege of choice, but we can never forget that every choice has a consequence. These two and a half tribes gave very little thought to the consequences of their choice. I put it on your notes there. Number one, they paid no attention to what the choice would mean for the morale of the rest of the nation of Israel. They didn't care. That's a bad place to be, guys. When you don't care about what your actions will do to the morale of your table, your family, your church, your job. They made it all about themselves. See, back then, wealth was measured by your livestock. These men of the tribes of Reuben and Gad were immersed in the material. For them, it was all about, how does this affect me, my family, my desires, my livestock? It was all about them. Man, we can do that, can't we? We can go, I don't really care how this choice affects somebody else. I can't tell you the number of times I have talked with people who are getting ready to have an affair. They're already emotionally attached. And I go, don't you know this is going to destroy X, Y, Z. They just care about themselves. They're so immersed in this desire. And that's what was happening to the tribes of Reuben and Gad. They were so immersed in this desire to just be settling in and make it good for their livestock and for their families. I mean, there were thousands of them. And so they just did what they wanted to do. The third thing, they didn't care about unity and cooperation. That's a bad place to be. And they paid no attention to what their choice would mean in isolation as they were cut off from relationship with their brothers and sisters. In fact, isolation gets them into trouble later. Um, Write down this on your notes, Joshua 11. Joshua 11. You can find, you can read it later, where their isolation almost causes a civil war between all the Jewish people. And later on, write down uh, 1 1 Chronicles 5, 25, and 26. 1 Chronicles 5, 25 and 26. And you learn that when the Israelites, they're, they're the first tribes to get carried away by the, um, by the Babylonians. And it says they were the first of all the tribes to be taken away because of their love for false gods as their lovers. They're isolated here. They turn away because they don't have the whole group to help them. Be really, really careful of anything that you do that leads you to isolation. When you begin saying, I don't need to go to heartstrings. When you begin saying, I can miss church every other week. When you begin saying, I can fill in the blank. When you find yourselves in any kind of isolation, maybe you're going through a crisis and you start pulling away from people because you're hurting so badly, that's a scary place to be. The more your crisis is, the more your problems are, the more you need to not be in isolation. 
Well, we read that story, and we're reminded, when I read that story, I'm reminded that this is how so many Christians still live today. They make choices without recognizing the potential negative consequences. I just began making a list of how that I've seen that happen in people's lives. Um, listen to this. I didn't put it in your notes. Think about that 16-year-old who takes that first cigarette. Never thinking about the addiction that will follow. And when she's 40, she's doing everything she can to give it up. Think about the person who says, I can't control my temper. And they live with that anger, never thinking about what it's doing to the broken relationships and what it's doing to the self-images of the people that he's, he or she's inflicting that on. Think about the woman who says, um, you know, who says, yeah, sure, I overspent. That's my choice. I've got the money. Never thinking about when it's time to give, to tithe, to give, to help needy. There's no money to do that. Think about the person who gives little attention to the marriage and ends up in divorce or isolation or an affair. Think about the person who has negative attitudes or comments towards somebody at their church, not thinking about how they hurt the cause of Christ and that they themselves then feel alone. Like you uh, have had thousands of times where I've had to make a choice, knowing that if I go this way, I can end up promised land. If I make this choice, the consequence will be something where I have to live in less than the promised land. One choice would result in one set of consequences. One choice would result in another set of consequences. I remember one out of a thousand of those. Many, many years ago, I received a letter from someone in our church. I, don't think, I can't remember if I told you this or not. She told me that she had given her life back to Christ, and she was trying to fix all of her relationships. And so she wrote me that she wanted to fix our relationship. I didn't know that we had a broken relationship, but she said we did. And so she wanted to ask me for forgiveness for the bitterness that she'd held towards me. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That's a fine request to ask someone. But she didn't stop there. The rest of the letter proceeded to tell me, I have hated everything about you. I've hated your clothes. I can smile today. Believe me, I didn't smile that day. I've hated your clothes, I've hated your marriage, I've hated how you teach, when you teach, I've hated your hairstyle, I've hated everything about you. And I want you to, she said, I want you to forgive me. (laughs) Okay. Thank you very much. Well, after crying for a couple of days, I realized that I had a choice in how I was going to respond to this person. I could choose to respond in anger and bitterness. I could dwell on the unfairness of her words. I could ignore her and turn the cold shoulder to her. I could write a letter back to her and tell her what I thought about her hair and her <laughs> But oh, the consequences that would have resulted from that kind of action. A broken relationship further, a hardened heart in me, a bitter spirit in me, and potentially even a church that could have been divided as people would hear about that and take sides. Or I could choose to take this to prayer and forgive her and work on the relationship and give her grace to keep growing. I could ask the Holy Spirit to soften my heart and give me love for her. And I can tell you so thankfully today that because of God's grace, I could choose the promised land. And oh, the consequences of that. That I can smile about that today. I can be just so grateful for God.
God's work in my life and then eventually in her life. Oh, the consequences of our choices, because our choices always have consequences. And since they do have consequences, a good question to get alone this week and ask is this. It's on your notes. Are there any choices I'm currently making that could result in consequences that I don't want to live with in the future? I wrote down some specific ways, some specific things to take before the Lord. Any choices regarding what I do with my mind? What I'm putting into my mind? Any choices about what I'm putting into my body and how I have to live with that? How I'm living my spiritual life? Anything negative about any of my relationships? Any ways that I'm being critical or negative of people that will result in broken relationships? Any way that I'm using my finances or my possessions in a way that eventually it's going to bite me? Or at least it's going to hurt me in not being able to be what God wants me to be financially. If you're making any wrong choices that will end up in negative consequences, I just urge you to take time this week to pause, to repent, and to change course. The promised land is just over there. Don't let consequences keep you out of it. Now, as you look over those things that I just wrote right there, those mind, body, spiritual life, relationships, critical, da-da-da-da. As you look over those, where does the Holy Spirit seem to be placing his finger of conviction on you? Maybe there's something I haven't put right there. I don't think I put in there marriage. I would, if you would write that down. Anything in your marriage that you say, man, I need to pay more attention to this. Um, I have one this week that has really come to me. I have uh, in my family relationships with my sisters and brother. I have some uh, relationships that are not as good as they could be. And um, it's sometimes, you know, you've... I'm going to turn this back on now. And live more in the promised land in those areas where I say, I'm going to give more... Oh, thank you. God's best. I'm going to live more... I'm going to... I'm going to not settle. I'm going to pursue relationship more. I'm going to spend more time calling, regardless of the response. I'm going to send cards, regardless of the response. I'm going to see them more regardless of the response because it's so easy to settle to say well I've done my part but I wonder if God would not like to push us to say you can do more okay and you can talk for a long time on that but we've got a third one that if you haven't been convicted so far trust me you will be now word number one was choices word number two is they always have consequences word number three is these guys wanted to live in comfort zones Comfort zones. Choosing to live in comfort zones may cause us to miss out on the promised land. Let me say that again. (laughs) Choosing to live in comfort zones may cause us to miss out on the promised land. There's something in the core of humanity that is tempting always to fall back into the familiar, the comfortable, the easy. That's what these tribes were doing. One author says, it's in your notes, they had built wealth and security for their futures without respect for the will of God, his promises for them in Canaan, or his spiritual purposes for them. Isn't that good? They had built themselves their lives without figuring God in. We can do that too. The promised land is just over there. But we remain here 
in our comfort zones, in Gilead, settling for less than what God wants. It's easy for us to do. I put some things on your notes there. We start our year with a commitment to time alone with God, but by March we find ourselves falling back into comfort zone times of watching TV instead. And all God's people said, yep. We make our New Year's resolution to exercise regularly, only to find by now that we're eating our comfort foods and checking Facebook more than we're exercising. And all God's women said, yep. We tell the Lord we're going to trust him to develop more faith in us, and then we avoid any situations that would develop that faith. Yep. We commit to to speaking positively and using our tongues to encourage only to find ourselves wrapped up in gossip and negativity when others begin to badmouth someone. Yep. And on and on we could go. Erwin McManus is one of my favorite authors. In his book, Seizing Your Divine Moment, he wrote this quote that is such a great word picture. He said, we can, the, we can settle for the warm bed covers of complacent Christianity. The warm bed covers of complacent Christianity. And when we do that, we just settle for comfort zone living. And we just feel so good. The trouble is, comfort zone living is usually Gilead and not promised land. Do you know what? We can settle for comfort zone living when it comes to our investment at church, too. That's your blank there. We can settle for comfort zone living at church, too. It's not just up there in our time alone with God, in our exercise, in our trusting for more faith, in our speaking positively about people. But we can miss out on comfort zone living in our church, too. Around your table, I want you to take two or three minutes to ask, answer this as fast as you can. Where are you tempted to settle? for comfort zone living. And this part, how do you think your Savior feels about it? When you wrap yourself up in the warm bed covers of complacent Christianity, where are you tempted to do that? And where, how does your Savior feel about it, do you think? So in your body, in your mind, in your church, in your time alone with God, in your tongue, where do you settle? for comfort zone living. Go. Well, I don't know where you tend to settle for comfort zone living, but I know where I do. And I know that it's not the place God wants me to live. When you think about faith compared to comfort zones, they're oxymorons, aren't they? They just don't match each other. I look back over a lifetime at Heritage, and I see so many times that we have been tempted as a church to retreat to the familiar, the comfortable, the easy. We've had to fight against that time after time. Let me give you a few examples. I remember when we first heard that we were too big... And that we're running, uh, that we were too big, and that we needed to stop growing. Do you know how many people we were running? A hundred. Yeah. 
we did, Charlene, you, you got it exactly right. We were so scared. It scared me to death. I knew everybody and their children and their jobs, and I knew uh, what they did on Wednesday, and we just knew each other. And we said, ooh, we think we, and we started to grow. This is scary, because we're not going to know everybody. We were tempted to settle into complacent Christianity. I remember when we were at a point of crossover, when we were considering purchasing a building. This one right here. We walked into this building. How many of you were here when we made that crossover into this building? We walked into the building. Sandy, I remember walking in with your husband. And he walked in and we were looking around and we were like, oh my goodness, this is the biggest place we've ever seen in our lives. And many of us, including Patty Bray, said, why would we want such a big building? We will never fit into it. And lots of people said it's too much money. And we were really tempted to settle for comfort zone living, the warm bed covers of comfortable Christianity. I remember when we began to talk about the fact that we really felt like God was calling us to start multiple campuses. And most people said, that's the weirdest idea I have ever heard in my life. Why in the world would we want to do that? Let's just build one big building that we can all come to. And of course, people who wanted it on this side of the river wanted it here. And people who wanted it on the other side of the river wanted it there. And I remember when I gave this uh, this message to QC West people last week, or last month, and said, just imagine if we'd said multiple campuses won't work. We wouldn't know you guys. We wouldn't know people at Bettendorf. I re, um, now, most of you were not here when we made those decisions. But let me tell you, you will be tempted to do the same thing in your future. You will be tempted to settle for the familiar, the comfortable, the easy, the cheaper way to go. You'll always be tempted to say, let somebody else do the work. I'm comfortable where I am, thank you very much. Let other people Take over that church. Help those kids. Lead that youth group. Help the worship. Lead the worship. Work. Give financially. I like my comfortableness. Thank you very much. Let others do the work. I will just like to sit back here, implying on my butt, and let others do the work. You see, these two and a half tribes chose the comfort zone living, and they received the consequences of their choices. They missed out. On the promised land. What is it? God's best. Let me tell you that when we choose our selfish, self-focused ways, we'll miss out on the promised land too. God's best for us as individuals and as a church. Think of all we would have missed out on if we'd remained a hundred people. I wouldn't know 99% of you guys. Or if we never opened other campuses. Or if we've never touched other lives. That's one of the things that that made last Wednesday so amazing to me is I got to take your cards and read the places where you said, this church has changed your life. And I think, oh, dear Lord, thank you that we didn't settle for comfort zone living. Thank you that we didn't just be willing to settle for Gilead because lives are being changed. And when the Holy Spirit reveals areas to you where you're still living in Gilead, I just want to encourage you to take them up that warm bed cover of Christianity and don't stay there. You see, the promised land is just over there and nobody can choose for you. 
Nobody else can choose for you to bring you over to promised land living. Nobody else can help you know John 10, 10, the fullness that Jesus wants to give you. Nobody else can help you know the peace. I mean, nobody else can make you have the peace and make you have the strength and make you have the empowerment and make you have all that God wants for you. You have to choose. But all the consequences of living over here, they are worth any price that you have to pay. So when you think about the choices that you're currently making, are there any that need to be surrendered? The consequences, are there any places where you say, I don't want to have that five years from now? Or any place that you say, comfort zone living is not going to allow me to live over here in God's best for me. Becky, would you go back and start that song for us? There's one word that you have there on your note to guides. It's just one more blank. It's the word surrender. And I want to encourage me, I want to push me, and I want to push you today to say, what do you need to surrender? What's the Holy Spirit been speaking to you about today? Do you need to surrender selfishness or comfort zones or choices or a specific place that you've marked? Where do you need to surrender? As we listen to this song, just take a few minutes and don't talk around your tables. Just talk to the Lord about surrendering to Him. And I'll see if you can turn it down. You have to turn it down there. I think this is the song I surrender. Picture coming over to promise Giving you my heart and all that is within. I lay it all down for the sake of you, my King. I'm giving you my dreams. I'm laying down my rights. I'm giving up my pride for the promise of new
know that every one of us bowing before you right now has a place that we need to surrender. Because that's what life's all about, just growing opportunities for deeper maturity in you. And that involves greater surrender. You know, you've just convicted me so much this week about my surrendering of my attitude towards my uh, siblings. And I'm thankful for your uh, forgiveness in that and for another opportunity to 
to do what I can do. Um, you've really convicted me this week about the fact that I've been on such an emotional roller coaster that I'm not devoting as much time to prayer as I need to in your word. And I'm thankful for forgiveness. And I pray for every woman who's valiant right now that you would be really specific and particular in her life. I'll bet you there are some women that their area is so um, uh, is so deep inside them they're embarrassed to tell it. I pray especially for those that you would just really help them to bring it to the surface, surface to verbalize it to you this week as they get alone with you and ask those questions that are on the note-taking guide. Help them to... To just be honest, blatantly honest before you, so that you can help them to walk over into promised land living. I want to pray that you help all of us to bring our selfishness before you. These um, Gads and or Gadites and uh, Reubenites and people from Manasseh—they were just selfish people, not thinking about how their choices were going to affect the future. And I think that's what we do so often. Lord, help me and help my friends here to lay before you our selfishness and allow you to cleanse it out of us so that we're the wives or the mothers or the uh, church people or the co-workers or the daughters or whatever it is that you want us to be. And I know that this surrender means that it's not over, it's just begun because now you're going to show us more and more areas that need to be surrendered. That's just what you do. Help us to trust you so much that we'll say to remain in promised land in God's best, I'll continue to surrender for the rest of my life as you speak to me. Thank you so much for these friends of mine. I pray that you would let now your blessing rest on them. I pray that you'll fill them as they've surrendered. Lord Jesus, would you do what you do? Fill them with joy today. Fill them with the sense of, oh my goodness, God, you let me live in the promised land. You let me live with deep relationship and friendship with you and joy and peace and eternal life and the ability to make a difference in somebody's life. Life is worth living that way. And I want to pray special for those who are hurting the deepest today, and they don't know how to get over the promised land. Lord, I pray even this week, by Easter, you'll do a new work in them to create some sense of hope in you where hope has died. I pray in your precious name for all these things. Amen. Amen. You know you have those three questions on your note-taking guides. Take them with you uh, this week in your time alone with God, and we'll get together next week and have another lesson.
Come out from under there, please. 